The Way Out podcast, episode 23. I was first introduced to alcohol. It was like magic for me. It made me feel like I could fit in. It gave me the confidence that I lacked. It made me feel like I was a was a better looking, a better dancer, funnier, um, fill in the blank. It gave me that confidence that I lacked without it. So initially it was magic until it turned on me. <laughs> me too. And, and look at the beginning, there was a time it did work for me before I became sure. so dependent. There was a time that it gave me that ease and comfort that I seeked. And then once I started wanting that feeling all the time, that's when the beast took over. And it was really hard to get off the self-destructive merry-go-round. Um, I used to care so much about what other people thought. And before I learned that that really didn't matter, right. the, al- <laughs> the alcohol made gave me that relief of, you know, from what other people thought. And I, I actually felt more comfortable in my own skin when I was drunk. But the wheels really fell off for me after I graduated school. Um, I had no real direction, so uh, the alcohol became more important and I started drinking around the clock by my mid-twenties. Make sure to check out the new official blog of the Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about the Way Out Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out. Sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Jane, and she talks about her book, A Beginner's Guide to Spirituality. Jane, thank you so much for joining the Way Out Podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Uh, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So tell us in the Way Out Podcast audience uh, a little bit about uh, Jane as you uh, uh, are growing up and uh, what uh, family of origin was like and what life was like for Jane uh, growing up. Um, I was born and raised in Lake Forest, Illinois. It's about uh, 40 miles north of Chicago. Um, I went to private schools. My dad was a very successful member of the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, I I hung out with a group of people and went to school with a group of people whose family traveled a lot. So we were always looking for some place whose parents were out of town and started drinking basically as early teenagers. Drinking to get drunk very early on. Do you remember how you felt the first time you drank? Was that a 
Was that a memorable experience for you? Was that a, was that a magical experience for you, or was it um, was it not that memorable for you? Oh, it was pretty memorable. I mean, I when I was first introduced to alcohol, I, it was like magic for me. It made me feel like I could fit in. It gave me the confidence that I lacked. It made me feel like I was a was a better looking, a better dancer, funnier. Um, fill in the blank. It mm-hmm. gave me that confidence that I lacked without it. So initially it was magic until it turned on me. Right. And in so many of us in uh, that that suffer with this disease of alcoholism and addiction can relate to that. Certainly felt like that way to me when the first time I drank, I felt like I should feel I felt like this is the thing that's going to this is the answer. This gives me the relief that I've been looking for all of my life. Where has this been? Where has this been? All of my life, this thing does for me what nothing else can, at least at that point. And as we find out, there is something else that can do that for us. But at that point, I had no idea. And I knew that alcohol made me feel like I wanted to feel. And I wanted to feel that way all the time afterward. Me too. And and look, at the beginning, there was a time it did work for me before I became so dependent. There was a time that it gave me that ease and comfort that I seeked. And then once I started wanting that feeling all the time, that's when the beast took over and it was really hard to get off the self-destructive merry-go-round. Right, right. So as you you find alcohol and you're in high school and uh, um, you're partying and um, is it wild and crazy at that time for you? Is it, you oh, know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, I use partying as a verb because that's all I cared about and all I did. It was very fitting. Um, I went to dead shows. I went to concerts. We drank till the sun came up. Um, that's just really all I cared about as a young adolescent was just getting drunk and partying with my friends. I could definitely relate to the party scene <laughs> and wanting to be able to be uh, really the life of the party. And, oh, yeah. Um, uh, where Where is the next party? Where am I going to get my next drunk on, right? Oh, absolutely. And it also gave me the feeling to finally feel like I fit in or belong, even though if it was a false comfort, it still felt comforting. Um, I used to care so much about what other people thought. And before I learned that that really didn't matter, right. the, al- <laughs> the alcohol made gave me that relief of, you know, from what other people thought. And I, I actually felt more comfortable in my own skin when I was drunk. As did I. I felt like uh, the world uh, uh, definitely was right, and I was comfortable in my own skin, and uh, I couldn't achieve that any other way. As you continue to do, uh, continue to party, are uh, do consequences mount? How does how does that evolve, and how does your drinking evolve as you start to come of age and you get into you know um, out of high school? Um, actually, I went to college. I went out east to Boston University, and I did quite well there. Um, I was I graduated on the dean's list, but I worked hard and I partied hard. Yep. Um, yep. But the wheels really fell off for me after I graduated school. Um, I had no real direction, so uh, the alcohol became more important, and I started drinking around the clock by my mid-20s. And did you find yourself at some point telling yourself you're not going to do X? Or you're not going to do why, or oh, yes. yeah, this is going to be a problem if I do this, or 
it's going to be a problem if I do that. And then you find yourself crossing that line and then drawing a new line. Oh, yeah. All those, you know, those invisible lines in the sand. I'll never drink in the morning. Cross that one. I'll never get behind the wheel. Cross that one. Um, yeah. And then it gets to the point where I didn't even have any lines I was drawing anymore because my self-esteem was so low. And I was just uh, I felt it, alcohol got me to the point once it really took over of just feeling worthless and unlovable. And how were your relationships at that point in that at that time in your life? Were relationships difficult with family, friends, significant others? Horrible, because you know when you when you drink that much, it's instinctive to lie. Because I was abusing my body with an obscene amount of alcohol daily, so you can't allow anyone to get too close because they'll see what a mess you are. Right. Right, right. So you had that Jekyll and Hyde thing going on, right? Oh, you bet. You bet. Isn't that painful? And I remember having that very same phenomenon in my life where I needed to keep up this this facade that everything was okay. And I had a good job and I had a house and I had these things, you know, and when uh, when my kids were with me, I'm divorced. And um, so when my kids were with me, I was super dad. And when they were with mom, I was a complete out of control drunk, right? Uh, and I had this Jekyll and Hyde life that I lived, and that's an inc- that's not a sustainable lifestyle. But I got into a position where I couldn't stop. So even though I knew that this wasn't sustainable, and we get into that position where we understand that I can't continue to drink like this, but I can't quit. That's the worst point, the jumping off point where you don't want to drink, but you find yourself drinking anyway. Right, right. Despite every fiber of your being now knows Mm -hmm. that this thing is out to kill you, that Mm -hmm. whatever has gotten a hold of you has now set out to kill you. Absolutely. Every fiber of your being does not want to take another drink yet you do because you can't stop Mm-mm. so it's it's the it is the master and you are the slave how did you how did that uh, how did that uh, materialize in your life and how did that end up i mean you're at this point where you're drinking in the morning you've crossed these lines and um you're in this impossible position you're lonely and desperately lonely and desperately um, um, ill from a spiritual perspective, mental perspective, right? Oh, yeah. Alcoholism is the great remover. It will first remove everything you care about and then go in for the kill. I used to say I lost everything due to my drinking, but in retrospect, that's not true. I put keen alcohol first, so I gave away everything because because alcohol was my master. I gave I gave things that I cared about in my life away because I cared more about alcohol. I mean, I used to say I lost this, I lost that. I didn't really lose anything. I just kept drinking and therefore that was my priority and that that was the end result. When you what at what point did you uh, decide to try something different to to to, to seek help to do something different because you know I tried to fix myself for years and I tried to convince myself that I was not an alcoholic or an addict for years and um, and at, at, well, at some point 
I got so desperate that I was willing to do whatever it took to recover. How did that and how did that work for you? The same way. That's what I love about AA is, is basically our story is all the same. It, I became I became desperate too. I just I became desperate enough to realize I am not willing to give up one more thing for my alcoholism. Step zero, I am done. Right. And that's when it changed for me. Right, right. You reached that point of, and I call it the gift of desperation. Yes. You know, And I believe yeah. it. I believe that to my core that God gave me that gift of desperation because I, as I went into treatment and cried like a baby in that treatment counselor's office, and I didn't expect to admit that I was an alcoholic. I didn't expect to completely surrender at that time. I didn't go into her office thinking that I was going to have this, you know, surrender to my disease, but I did. And I can only explain that through an act of a power much greater than myself, who I choose to call God. That power did for me what I could not do for myself, just like when I was 15 and I drank and, and alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. But this time it was God and God did for me what I could not do for myself. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when I first went to AA and they started talking about God, I thought it was daunting. I thought, oh, my gosh, I just want to quit drinking. I don't want to be bombarded by a bunch of holy rollers. Right. I didn't I didn't understand it. You know, they'd say things like, I'll love you till you learn to love yourself. I think keep your pants on, Romeo. Right. The rea <laughs> reality is I didn't know I didn't love myself. My ego was so distorted. And, you know, I lived in denial for so long. I real alcohol used to be my best friend and I just didn't want to give it up. So having that, you know, thinking that all of a sudden that the thing that you went for for ease and comfort is now out to kill you is a real rude awakening. It really is. It really is. It's the one thing that I could depend on that could make me feel okay. And now this one thing, this only thing that I could depend on that to make me feel okay is now out to kill me. And I have a great friend in recovery that says just exactly that. My disease, if my disease gets its way, it takes everything away from me that I hold dear. It gets me alone, and then it well, kills me. Exactly, because it's a fixed fight. You know, if I step back into the ring with cane alcohol, I will get my ass kicked every time without exception. Now, when I was drinking, I didn't know that because logical reasoning is affected when you're intoxicated around the clock. Right. But So that's why I had trouble receiving the message when I was still drinking. I'd go to AA meetings. I'd still drink. And I, for me personally, I had trouble receiving until I was able to put the plug in the jug. Then things started making sense that, oh, my God, this bottle wants to kill me. Isn't it amazing, though, that we're able to go to this program that it, the only requirement is a desire to stop drinking? Isn't that mm -hmm. amazing? How many of oh, us yeah. would not be sober today and not be in recovery today if the bar was any higher than that? Right. You, if you, you had better to, believe it. Right. Right. If you had to uh, uh, have a sobriety requirement or this requirement, you know. 
Yeah, I would I would drink and then go back to meetings. And the thing I love about AA is we don't shoot our wounded. Right. You know, who needs the meeting more, the the drunk guy or the guy with 20 years sober? Yeah, you know, give the give the drunk guy a meeting every single time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, you know, the mm-hmm. guy that's 20 years sober gets to remember what it was like. Exactly. You know, and he keeps him green. That's mm-hmm. right. And every one of us who sees a newcomer come in those doors is so darn grateful for the ability to reconnect with that horror that we survived. I know. So you are in AA, you're coming in and out, you're not quite getting the message because uh, you're still in the problem and not in the solution yet. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You get that gift of desperation and you uh, put the proverbial plug in the jug um, when does it, when does recovery really start to take hold for you? What, what is it that you do for me? I, you know, it was, I just put my head down and I started working steps and I shut my mouth and I just started doing work and it right. wasn't about talking or thinking or anything. It was just about doing what I was supposed to do. Absolutely. No, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired for years. That wasn't enough. You have to be sufficiently sick and tired of being sick and tired to be willing to do something about it. You know, they say meeting makers make it. I think that's a little dangerous because I was going to meetings and still drinking. Our solution lies in our literature. And the first night I went without a drink was the first night I got into the big book with my sponsor. That's that's where the solution is. And that's what saved my life. And I think that's such a huge thing you just said there. And I think that message needs to be heard because I also have that as part of my experience that meeting makers don't always make it Mm -mm. because meetings are the fellowship and that's great. The fellowship is a huge part of my recovery, but But that's not the solution. That ain't the solution. Mm -hmm. The solution is in that big book in that first 164 pages and working those 12 steps. Yep. That's That's what what got me better. That's what got me into recovery. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, the meetings reinforce that, and the meetings let me know that I'm not alone, and the meetings do a lot of things, but they don't uh, work the steps for me. Uh, if I go no. to a lot of meetings, I don't work any steps, right? Yeah. You know, they say AA doesn't have enough room for the people who want it or need it. It's really for the people who are willing to do the work. Right. That's where that's where the magic happens. And and I 100 percent agree with that. So you start working the steps. And was that a difficult process for you? How did the how did how did uh, take me through that experience of working the steps? And 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 what happens to Jane um, as you start working these steps? Are you experiencing a change? What's happening? Well, physically, I mean, when I, when I first quit drinking, I didn't know whether to shit or wind my watch. I was just an absolute mess. So, you know, they told me in AA, bring the body, the, the mind will foul. So I made sure I went to two to three meetings every day. I started running. I don't know what was in worse shape, my body or my mind, but that seemed to help me. And, you know, and just sticking around those meetings, because when I first put down the drink, I couldn't believe what a horrible mess I had made of my life. Just an absolute, it was in shambles. So to have that fellowship and that support system 
was essential when I was looking at the damage of my drinking. And you're dealing with these feelings that we haven't been able to cope with all our lives anyway, right? And now oh, we're yes. trying to deal with all this stuff sober. Are you kidding? Uh -huh. Are you kidding? I have to deal with all of this sober? I don't even know what a feeling really is. I don't know how to identify feelings. And you want me to, like, not drink over them. Okay, how do I do this, right? Mm, absolutely, because that's all I did was, oh my gosh, I'm feeling something uncomfortable. Time right. to reach for a drink. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So, so what helped me was um, the spiritual aspect. You know, God. Just think, I needed to find a power bigger than alcohol to preclude myself from drinking. I choose to call that power God, good orderly direction, and latching on to because. My self-esteem was so low. It's really hard to feel good about yourself when you're drinking Chardonnay for breakfast. So just to get the, I felt unlovable. And when I was learning and feeling that God loved me, that was what gave me the confidence to, to face my life and start caring about myself and others again. Okay, let's take a quick break from our interview with Jane to talk about gratitude. My name's Roger. I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Where should I begin? Let's talk about nine months sober and then a relapse. The first lesson I learned there was the insanity of our disease. I picked up and when I wanted to put down, I couldn't. And I tried. I kept going to meetings. And I'd go home and I'd smoke and I'd drink. And this carried on for a good four months. And as much as I wanted to stop, I couldn't. Things started falling apart, as they are wont to do. And it was a pretty quick downslide I was very fortunate to have a good friend suggest I might need help. And so, thanks to the great state of Minnesota, I had my Rule 25 assessment and was admitted into an inpatient treatment program. And I got to learn a lot about myself and our disease. And the first thing I learned there is that knowledge of my disease will not fix it. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it okay to use. But that knowledge builds a foundation of what the nature is. Something about a hedonic disorder in the midbrain. Dopamine levels and receptor uh, malfunctions which is okay. That's the genetic side of it. In treatment, I learned how to handle stress. I had some experiences that I didn't quite agree with for a couple weeks there. It became intense. I wanted to leave. And I shut down. And I didn't realize I was shutting down. It was those around me who could see what was going on and how I was reacting or responding to these stressors. And I learned that I have one switch with two volumes. 
we want to keep the switch off. So I'm going to speak really low and I'm going to whisper and I'm not going to raise a stink and I'm not going to talk a lot when I do. Because if that switch goes on, I'm pretty sure I'll end up in jail within an hour. And that didn't happen. I got through it. I learned that I have these creative outlets that allow me to. They made me do a personal recovery plan. It wasn't due for two more weeks, but I sat down and I did all my homework because I wanted to leave. I just wanted out. So here's all my homework. I turned it in. I'm done. I'm done with the homework. Took all of like a day. We'll get back to that. But that's how I handled stress. I learned that I could draw again. When I went to outside meetings, I could practice my piano. We didn't have one at the treatment center, unfortunately. But we'd go to a church and I'd sit down and I'd have a few minutes to just crank out a tune or three, which was fine. But I learned that when I do shut down, it's important to check in with myself, see where I'm at, how am I feeling? And I need that reprieve from daily life. I need to take a few minutes to myself and not interact with the community. There's a difference between withdrawing and isolating and coming back to me. And I learned that. So I have all these tools now that I didn't have before as much as I was working my program, as much as I was attending uh, meetings, as much as I was involved with the fellowship. I wasn't building these tools that were necessary for me to be able to handle these big life events that hit me faster than I can keep up with. So to the part, on August 26th, my son Kai Danielle was born at 3.41 a.m. And the last time I had talked to his mother, she assured me that I would not have anything to do uh, with him. I would not be involved in his life. Uh, she made it clear. And I didn't like that at all. And when I learned that he was born, I did ask if I could meet him. And she reassured me again that that wasn't going to happen. Shortly thereafter, I entered treatment. This was during my relapse. That that took place and during treatment I didn't talk about that I still don't talk about that I have a hard time with it and my counselor in treatment had touched base with my counselor in the real world for lack of a better word and uh, her primary concern is how am I doing with processing uh, the events concerning concerning Kai and so my counselor there asked me, you know, your counselor wants to know. I said, I haven't processed it. I hadn't talked about it. I've, I've avoided thinking about it. But the whole time during those seven weeks, you know, when I leave here, I'll be in a better place to make a concerted effort to be involved in my son's life. So we're going to get back to gratitude. This is Saturday. I left treatment yesterday morning at about 9 a.m. 
and about 6.55, I uh, was getting ready to leave for uh, a meeting at 8, that I had to leave a little early for. I had to find the place and give myself time in the weather to get there. And uh, so at about 5 to 7, I received a phone call. It was Kai's mother. And um, he died at 2.03 p.m. And every ounce of my being wants to shut down. I don't know what I feel. There's anger, there's frustration, and there's grief. these tools that I didn't have before and who knows how I would have reacted I know to sit on my hands I know to spend time with my sponsor I know to get my butt in a chair at that meeting and I know to go back to a safe place when the meeting's over So it's been less than 24 hours. And this is the second time I've talked about it with anyone. So back to gratitude. I have those tools and I can put them to use. Like my higher power showed me something that I didn't realize I needed at the time or wasn't prepared for. But I'm in a better position to uh, deal with that situation right now. It's not easy, but I'm not high or drunk either. And for that, I'm very grateful. Let's get back to our interview with Jane. And that's such an amazing thing to be able to go through a process whereby we are able to connect with a power greater than ourselves, whatever that means to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my sponsor took me through and I thought, you know, I grew up uh, Catholic, so I'm a recovering Catholic. Sorry for anybody that's Catholic. I love Catholics. I think they're the greatest people in the world. Um, and but that didn't work for me. So they said, well, you, you know, you have to have a God of your understanding. Oh, good. So now you're tasking me with the. A project of trying to create my own higher power? Are you kidding? How am I going to do that? How am I going to invent a higher power that's going to save me? That doesn't even make sense to me, right? Right, and, right. And my sponsor's like, hey, knucklehead, uh, why don't you list all the things that you think is uh, not God, right, on a piece of paper? And then why don't you list all the things you think you sh you would like to have in a God if you could make one up? If you could just, you know, make the perfect God, what would it look like? And it was, you know, love and compassion and forgiveness and, you know, um, all power and all knowing and all these, you know, really great things, right? And then on the other side, I had all these horrible things like hate and resentment and, you know, <laughs> fear. And he's like... Boom, you just did it. You just defined what the power is that you need in your life. And it was that simple. And I was like, that's amazing. 
That's yeah. amazing to me. You mean that can be my higher power? He said, yes, it can be your higher power, you knucklehead. It can be anything <laughs> you want. And I saw other members talking about their relationship with their higher power as someone, as a being that has their back, their best friend. And I thought that was just so appealing. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. And I learn more about God and spirituality through other people, right? I do too. I learn, you know, I don't have a fixed idea of what my higher power is. In fact, I have a very simple, very, very simple understanding of my higher power. And that was probably the biggest thing is I didn't have to understand it a whole lot. I just had to accept that it existed and that it was there to help me. And that if I trusted the steps that light, that things would get better and that my higher power would start to reveal himself to me as mm-hmm. I started to uh, be in recovery. And that's what, ha- that's what's happened. And my higher power continues to reveal himself to me as I continue on in recovery. Yeah. And, you know, I don't understand fully either, but I believe. And when it comes to this, I believe belief is the most powerful metric. I would agree 100%. And I I did it as an experiment. You know, it was like, okay, I know what the other life looks like. I know what <laughs> it feels like. I know that life. Okay. I get that. I know if I don't do this, I know what happens. Okay, mm-hmm. I drink and I suffer and I'm intensely uh, lonely and I'm in a lot of pain and uh, and I can't connect to people and my relationships are troubled and I feel like uh, that that constant, you know, restless, irritable and discontent. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that I know what that's yeah. like. So I could always go back to that if this whole higher power thing doesn't work out. I can. You know, like like the old timers like to say, you know, just try this. We'll gladly <laughs> refund your misery. Fund your misery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> and the proof is in the pudding. It is. Because uh, I, I recovered, you know, and that's that's real life. That that happened. And I, I like I, that you use the word recovered. Because I believe that I've also recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. I agree. I don't uh, – I'm in recovery, but I believe that I've recovered. From that state. Correct. Yes. That yes, is absolutely too. correct. Mm-hmm. And that is real life for me. I have recovered. I no longer have that um, obsession. I don't have oh, it. Yeah. It's gone. Now, that is by far the biggest gift that AA has given me has relieved me from the mental obsession. Cause if I was still thinking about drinking, I'd still be drinking. Right. That's you know, right. It, I, it was, it was never a fair wrestling match. I want to drink. I don't want to drink. I want, I mean, if you're wrestling with it, alcohol is going to win every single time, every, every time. single time. So without it's, a doubt. it's really easy not to drink when you're not thinking about it all the time. That's right. When that obsession gets lifted and it was lifted by virtue of me, not, doing it what i always tried to will it away right like i always tried to just have that mental like willpower fight with it like i was gonna beat it and always beat me like you said king alcohol is gonna beat my ass every time and it did Mm -hmm. but when i don't focus on it and then i focus on uh the steps and i and i and i get a conception of a higher power and then i admit my uh, my my faults uh, to god and to another human being right and mm-hmm. then I trust God enough 
to have him remove those character defects that he sees fit. And I, um, the biggest thing I think for me, Jane, was that I decided that very early on that the will of the, uh, my higher power was for me to be of maximum service to God and to the people around me on a daily basis. I believe that to my core. I started doing that very early in recovery only for, 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 for a very selfish reason, actually, because it was the only thing that I could feel tangibly that I was doing that was helping, that was doing something to be a part of my recovery, if that makes any sense to you. Mm-hmm. And so by virtue of just trying to be of maximum service to those people, and to my higher power, I forgot about myself. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that amazing? God relieved me of the bondage of self. Right, right. And because I was not thinking of me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then God was able to start doing the things for me that I could not do for myself because I was doing his work in other ways. I was trying to just be of service. And then he came in and said... You know, I get to do my work now. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about your book. You, you get you're in recovery. Um, you've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body, which is just a, an absolute miracle. <laughs> and it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And I feel that miracle in you. And and when when I hear you talk about that, the genuineness that you speak of your recovery is so great because I know how authentically you feel about that tell me what inspired you to write your book what's your book called and uh tell me uh kind of the inspiration behind it um it's called thanks so much it's called love and compassion is my religion a beginner's book into spirituality and it's just basically my story i mean i was told by so many people when i wasn't receiving a message when i was showing up at meetings drunk that i was a, a good example of a bad example and then when I was actually recovering, I got such positive feedback, and I thought, you know, if I just put this out there, if it helps one other person, terrific, great. And so. did you find the process of writing that book was a process of sort of discovery or healing for you as well? Oh, absolutely. It was very, very therapeutic. You know, and, and to get to the compassion part, when I was a drunk I didn't even like myself or care about myself, let alone the other guy. Right. So that's where the compassion comes in. You know, when you start to, to feel that love and, and feel okay with you, it's a natural progression to be kinder to others. But when you feel really horrible and you don't like yourself, it's really a challenge to be nice to other people, I found. And I, and I, can, I can relate to that 100%. You know, I didn't like me very much. I didn't like who I had become. And that gap between who I was at that time and who I at some level knew I could be mm-hmm. was so big. And I've talked about this before, but it's just so important that it was like it was unattainable that person that i thought i might be able to become i thought was completely unattainable that that ship had sailed that i was a lost cause that there was no way i was going to be able to be that person i thought that i was able to be and because of recovery because of alcoholics anonymous and working the 12 steps i'm closer to that person today than i ever thought i would be and oh, that, isn't that amazing yeah that oh that that is cool, yeah it is it's it's something else I mean to go from 
I, 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 know I didn't try to commit suicide. I didn't have the balls for that, but I really was so miserable. You know, I'd wake up and open my eyes and think, oh no, another day. Oh, you know, it was was such a struggle. And then going through the, the daily battle of, oh my gosh, do I have enough alcohol? Do I need to get more alcohol? I mean, alcohol dictated my daily life for years and to have that freedom of, oh my gosh, I'm not drinking anymore. I don't have to be this drunk anymore. You know, unlimited potential can open up for me. And I too thought my ship had sailed. I thought I was a loser. I thought this is it. I'm going to die a drunk. And that's the way it was. And you recovered, you know, in your late 30s like I did. I got, Mm -hmm. uh, I I recovered when I was 36 years old. And, um, you know, it really has unlocked this completely different, uh, you know, every I feel like there's uh, literally nothing that isn't possible today, and that certainly wasn't the case at all before I entered recovery. In fact, it was a very, very uh, uh, dark place mm-hmm. and a place of despair and hopelessness and sorrow and loneliness. And I come from a place of despair and hopelessness and sorrow and loneliness to a place of hope and optimism and love and gratitude for the ability to have this life that I have today. And I'm not the richest person in the world today. I don't have, you know, um, but um, it ain't, it, 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 it just ain't, ain't about, about that. that. It just ain't about that. Is it? It's no. about, you know, it's about you. It's about you and it's about people. And so how is life for you today? Much better, much, much better. Um, you know, <laughs> To go to, I like you said, you know, just living like that. I was living basically an incomprehensible demoralization. To go into AA and to see people living these rewarding lives, I thought maybe, just maybe, that would be possible for me. And it turns out it was. And then it's it's just a miracle. It really is. And so this love and compassion is my religion. And this beginner's guide to spirituality. Uh, tell me about that a little bit more. And you know, if uh, what do readers get when they uh, when they take the journey of of uh, uh, of this book? I don't care if it's drugs, alcohol, you're overeating. If you are reaching for something external to try to fix the way you feel inside, I believe you're dealing with some sort of spiritual malady. And I believe spirituality can fix that. That's why I wrote the book. The soul sickness, the spiritual sickness. Yeah. And I believe that 100% that I was spiritually sick. And you that, could have parked a semi in my chest you know, years right? ago. You could, it was just that emptiness. Yep. And nothing would fill it. Nothing. Not, not alcohol, not Mm-mm. relationships, Mm-mm. not money, not no. sex, nothing, nothing would fill that. Though... Um, if you're like me, you tried all of those. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's really a God-sized hole that would needed to be filled. That's right. And for a guy that, you know, um, for me, my mom died when I was uh, 12 years old, 11 oh. years old. And, you know, I wrote off God right away. Like, you know, uh, I don't need any part of a God that is going to do that to somebody, right? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. th- it, it, I want no part of that. No thanks. You all can take your God. That's great. But uh, I want no part of a God that would do that, right? Um, oh. And that set the stage, really, for my spiritual sickness to really um, uh, take hold in my life. And 
Uh, it's amazing today. You know, three years ago, I would never, ever, 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 ever have believed that I would be uh, uh, living a spiritual life and a life, uh, and, and and be telling you that the God of my understanding is literally the most important part of my life today, and it has saved my life. Um, that's an amazing thing for me, and I think that that story needs to be told and in, in a way that is 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 non-threatening to those who find uh, spirituality either scary or that, you know, uh, they've had problems with God in their life and have had life events happen to them for one reason or another that has really damaged their ability to be able to connect with a higher power. Um, that to me is, you know, I feel like we're, we're, um, uh, we're, the the wounded healers in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Like we've got these wounds, we've got these things, but we have the, such a power to heal each other through our stories and connect through our stories. And if somebody could say, yeah, I felt like that, I did that, I thought like that, and maybe I can recover too. Maybe yeah. I can get this God thing too. And maybe it doesn't have to be the God that I grew up with or the God that, you know, um, you know, my neighbor, uh, uh, has, maybe it can be a God that's very simple and, uh, uh, that, that I can connect with. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of other people, I didn't think God believed in me. I thought I still believed in God, but I didn't think God believed in me because I thought I was such a helpless case. Right. But yeah, but you know, God and the good people of AA really loved me back to life. That is absolutely amazing to me. So where can people get your book? I think it's on Amazon because I saw it. It is. Yeah, um, it's on Amazon and, yeah, and Kindle. Yep, so you can get the Kindle version or you can get the real live book. It's in stock. I saw it. Um, <laughs> uh, and so uh, if you're uh, interested in reading an amazing story of spirituality and recovery, I urge you to pick up the book and and give it a good read because anything for me that is um uh, a story of of uh, it's a miracle it's a it's a story of a miracle that's what it is and um i think that's amazing what would you uh, of of uh, what we maybe what we haven't covered what if you were talking to the newcomer to somebody who is struggling in with alcoholism or addiction um what would you say, and, and, and what what words would you give at this moment to somebody who is in that um, that hopeless place that you and I were both in at one point in our lives? There's help. There's a way out. You don't have to stay there. Um, if it's alcohol, go to AA. AA saved my life. It saved your life. Um, if, I think if you have a problem with alcohol, it's the best place to go. Uh, there's no place better in my mind than mm -hmm. the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's and free. It's you know, free. Give, give a dollar if you can. And if you can't, like I couldn't when I first got there, I drank away all my money. Keep coming back until you can. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it gets better. And you were you you the first person who caught the uh, meaning and the origin of this podcast, the Way Out <laughs> podcast, and I loved it. And uh, 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 tell us uh, in the Way Out podcast audience where that name comes from. 
Oh, that's what they wanted to call the book, the big book originally, but it that name was already taken. There was a, like a bunch of books that were already named yeah. the way out, so they yeah, couldn't was use the that out. name. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they just called it simply Alcoholics Anonymous, which works perfect. But it's very fitting because AA, in my opinion, is the way out if you've got a drinking problem. That's right. It's the way out. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it was the way out for me. I yeah, got me this. Too. Gave me the way out and. Boy, is it a good life today, <laughs> and boy, is it amazing today, and your story was amazing, Jane. I can't thank you enough for being a part of the Way Out podcast. Uh, friends, if you want to reach out to Jane, just email share at wayoutpodcast.com, and I will make sure Jane gets your message. If you connected with her story, if you want to learn more about her story, I will make sure she gets the message. Again, share at wayoutpodcast.com. Jane, thank you so much for being on the show. It, just amazing. You're, uh, you, people can't see your smile, but it's infectious. And uh, uh, that's a, that, that, uh, that, to me, is the, 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 the beautiful part of recovery is we get to smile again, don't we? That's right. We get that's to smile right. again. Jane, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.